Do not lie to one another, saying that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Good morning, Covenant. Just out of way. There we go. It's good to see everyone this morning. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Guys, I hope you're good to your wife or to your mom. I see faces from our young adults who've come back in town to be with mom. You're, you're the best children because you've traveled in from South Carolina and Orlando. Oh, but it's so good to see everybody. You know, um, last week I was flipping through the channels and I, I one of those... ET or entertainment, and one of those programs came on, and they were covering the the Metropolitan Gala, the Met Gala. Are you familiar with that? Every year, the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, opens up this special shindig. It's a, a select number of people are invited, like 800 or so, super secret. Phones are not allowed in the place. You know, and everybody has to dress in like a designer clothing. And they have this huge red carpet, you know, and this celebrities and musicians will come in their various outfits. And some of them are very pretty and some of them are, you know, okay. And, uh, you know, and, and this year, even Catwoman, she showed up uh, to the Metropolitan Gala as something else. And so as these people are coming down to red carpet, of course, there's the interviewers and they're making a big deal about them and they're saying how beautiful you look. And, and then they inevitably ask the question, who are you wearing? And the person says, I'm wearing, you know, Versace. I'm wearing Scarpali or I'm wearing Chanel or Christian Dior or I'm wearing Vera Wang or Donna Caron or someone like that. And it's all about who are they wearing. This year, they were all wearing Carl. Okay, Carl is a, a, a famous designer who designed for different houses, and he died. And so they were wearing something in memory of Carl this year. Don't know what it has to do with a cat, but there we are. Okay, apparently Carl and cats had a thing. I bring that up because in our text this morning, Paul's making an important point. Because of our identity in Christ, we're to be wearing Jesus to one another. It's all through this passage in these verses this morning. We're in the section of Colossians where Paul is fleshing out and applying what he established in the first two chapters. In those first two chapters, he established the preeminence and the superiority of Christ over everyone and everything. Why should the Colossians, why, for that matter, should we even consider adding to Jesus some of the 
the false philosophies, uh, man-made philosophies of this world, or the empty promises of the world religions when we have been united to Jesus. His perfect life is our life through faith. His death, burial, and resurrection is our death, burial, and resurrection through faith. His uh, ascension to the heavenly Father, sitting at the right hand of God himself, through faith is how we now have access at any time we want to commune with our creator. Now, appropriating this identity that we have in Jesus, Paul understands <clears throat> this is the difficult part. It's, it's hard. Appropriating this identity that we now have in Jesus is a process that will play out over our entire lives until eternity. But this process and this identity and this process, it affects every aspect of our lives. Last week, we saw how our identity in Christ affects our sanctification, our pursuit and holiness, our desire to, to live for God and to be like Jesus. Well, this morning in these verses, in verses 9 to 17, Paul applies our identity in Christ to our relationships within the local church. Whenever you come across the words, one another, in the New Testament. That's always code for your fellow believers in your local church. And there are tons of commands that are all associated with how we are to live in community with one another. What it looks like to wear Jesus to each other in our local church. And this is Paul's theme here this morning. And so as we think about our identity at church, I want us to maybe contemplate two gospel applications that we should think about this morning. First of all, our identity in Christ frees us to live authentically and transparently with one another. Verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So it's Mother's Day. Moms, wives, especially, I am sure, that each of you who is a wife, that my wife is not the only one who has a husband with some clothing item that he refuses to throw out. For example, more than once through the 30-something years of marriage now, I have held on to a fishing shirt long past its prime, that has easily reached the state of what Catherine would describe as nasty. <laughs> nasty. And it drives Catherine crazy to see me take that shirt and put it into the washing machine and wash it. In her mind, she is seeing millions of fish germs now spreading to all future loads of laundry, infecting all of the clothes, and she literally gets nauseous at the sight of it. It makes her sick to see it. But every fisherman, every hunter, every male athlete in this room knows that you do not jinx yourself <laughs> by throwing out the clothes 
that you were wearing when you caught those fish or killed that buck or hit that home run or made that basket. You keep those socks, you keep those clothes until they are literally almost impossible to wear anymore. Why mess up your juju, right? It's just common sense. However, this past Tuesday, after returning from a great day on the water, I looked at this green shirt that I have been wearing probably, I was thinking back, I, I found pictures that I think actually go back seven or eight years, you know? And I, I looked at this, this shirt uh, with the, all the stains of the past trips. I mean, you could play connect the dot with all the stains of this thing. Now freshly smeared with new fish slime and fish scales and all kinds of blood all over it. And I decided it's time. No more. I know. Weep. Weep with me, church. Weep with me. I had, I had, I had put it, yeah, frame it, right? Hall of Fame, right? Exactly. The fisherman understands. I mean, I had put that shirt in the pool so many times and left it there 24, 48 hours, let the chlorine work. I've left that thing in OxyClean for three days at a time. I've done everything. And I, when I, took, I just looked at it this Tuesday, and I said, nothing, there is absolutely nothing I can do that is going to remove this foul odor from this shirt. It's time. And in a sacrificial act of love, anticipating Mother's Day. This is the only Mother's Day present she's getting. I threw that shirt away. Threw it away. Gave it to her. The best Mother's Day she's ever had, I guarantee you, right? Threw it all out. Now, why did I tell you that story? Because verse 9 is all about clothing. Verse 9 is clothing language. Verse 9, when it says, put off the old self... It is literally saying, throw the nasty shirt away. Throw it out. Turn your back on it. See it for what it is. It's nasty. Throw it off. Throw it away. Discard it forever. At conversion, this is what has to happen. We have to decide once and for all to strip off and discard the fleshly shirt that we received in our natural state from our ancestor, Adam, and to start wearing Christ. On that day, when those of us who are Christians, when we received Christ as our Lord and Savior, we rejected the old clothing of Adam and of the old self, and instead, we've now put on Christ. We're, we're clothed in his robes of righteousness. We're wearing Jesus. We recognize that what we were wearing was sin with all of its corruption and its power and, and its influence over our will, and we received what Jesus put on us, a new nature, with a new inclinations and new desires. This clothing language here isn't like optional. It's the same intensity as the language that we've seen where he says, put to death sin. You have died with Christ. This is intense, almost violent language here. This is not some temporary stylistic wardrobe change. Not at all. When we died with Christ... We rejected, we threw away the nasty old self 
in order to receive the new self with its allegiance to Jesus that is now clothed in righteousness, giving off not the aroma of sin, but the aroma of the gospel. That's what it means to be converted. And verses 9 and 10 remind us how important this is needed in all of our lives because of what we have lost due to our natural state. Our natural sin has caused us to lose something precious. Verse 9 and 10 tell us that we were originally created perfectly in the image of God. Sin has ruined this. Sin has marred the honor that each of us was invested with in human beings in the dignity of being created in the image of God. But with our salvation, we are now discarding that fallen nature and we are putting on the beauty of Christ so that this image is gradually being restored within us. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 3.18. It speaks to what I said just a few moments ago, that this process of being sanctified, of being changed, and being transformed into the image of God that was lost at that first set of parents in that fall of humanity. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, We all with unveiled face. And the we here is speaking to those who have committed their life to Christ, who've thrown away the old and put on the new, who've received him as their Lord and Savior. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is what's going on in our lives right now, Christian. And it's, sometimes it may feel like it's three steps forward and two and a half steps back, Sometimes the change can be very, very small, but when you look at it from God's perspective, over time, there is a gradual transformation taking place in your life as a believer through the inner ministry of the Holy Spirit, where you are being more and more transformed into the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes from Him through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So when you think of this, that Jesus is doing this work within us, he does so because we now belong to him. And who is he? He is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no woman comes to me, to, to, comes to God, but through me. He is the truth. So it then makes sense why Paul would begin this passage talking about our transformation and our identity in Christ, exhorting us to walk in the truth. Do not lie to one another. Literally, he says, do not live falsely with one another. Do not live dishonestly with one another. Do not live falsely in either your words or your deeds with one another. Stated positively, Paul is saying, live authentically, transparently, honestly with one another. What Paul is saying here really supports and, and, and gives us an understanding of why our very first church value, we have six church values, our very first one reflects the truth of verse 9. It's this idea of living authentically with one another. In a world of guilt and shame, we share, and what's that next word? Together. We share together in the grace of God as we repent of our sins and heal from our wounds. And this repentance of a sin and healing from the wounds that 
come about because of sin isn't done alone. It's done together. This idea of living authentically, this value of living honestly and transparently and authentically, it's so important. You see, we are blind to the working of sin in our own life, but when we are living transparently and authentically with other people, one of the benefits of that is other people can often pick up on the early indicators that, sign, that sin is beginning to work its, uh, uh, itself into our lives and influence us. It's through living in community like this where we are being transparent, we're being real and authentic. When you're being real and authentic and transparent with people, that doesn't leave a whole lot of place for pride, does it? See, living authentically with one another actually promotes humility. It puts down pride. It puts down self-reliance. It promotes humility and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, anybody who, who's ever gotten victory over an addiction or over a habitual sin, you will never find a part of their testimony being that, oh yeah, I did it all by myself. <laughs> It happens because they are living authentically with other people who are able to speak truth into their lives, who are there for them, who hold their arms up when they grow weary, put your arms around them when they are grieving, and going with them throughout that journey of recovery and restoration. Living authentically and transparently and honestly with one another flourishes and becomes the norm when we begin to see ourselves for who we are in Christ, when we begin to see who others are in Christ, and not how the, maybe how this fallen world identifies us or labels them. Relating to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Relating and responding out of our identity in Christ ensures that the local church is the family of God and not just another form of a sterile, institutional type of corporation. Churches can become that. And why does that happen? They're not living authentically out of their identity in Jesus Christ. This leads us to a second gospel application, a final one. Those are some of y'all's favorite words. Our church is a radically different type of community when our relationships are shaped by our eternal identity. Verse 11 says here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Let's pause here for a moment. Let's not overlook that even more than the original audience, we, we exist within a heterogeneous, a multicultural society that has been divided and fractured according to various categories and subcultures. It's growing worse, one group being pitted against another. Let's not overlook that in light of that, that when we throw off the nasty clothing of our old self, Paul is saying here, we throw off, we reject we, we reject the white hoods and the racism of the Klan. There's no place for this in the church of God. We reject the, uh, 
the uniform, the anti-Semitism of the Christian nationalist movement. And this in particular is a danger to conservative Christians and conservative churches in America right now. And I'm here to tell you that even as it takes over political parties, this Christian nationalist movement is not Christian. They're hijacking the Christian faith. When we throw off these shirts of old, Paul is saying here by giving us this list, we're rejecting the black gloves and the racism of militant groups like the Black Panthers and others that have followed in their stead. When we throw off these nasty clothes, we are rejecting the external manifestations and the lifestyles associated with the many ideologies of the world that divide us and create hatred and strife. Some of these ideologies come to us in the guise of religion. And others come in the guise of our skin color, or it's the ideology around political beliefs, or ideologies that elevate our economic status. And even now, most recently and most predominantly in our world today and in the media, it is an ideology that is revolving around our sense of self. While there's aspects of these ideologies, these categories that sometimes we get put into that might have their benefits or valid, valid in some way. By the way, I'm not talking about the categories of the Klan and racism. That's, no, that's all evil, okay? Nothing redeeming about that. But there are other ways that we categorize ourselves, subcultures that we find ourselves a part of based upon our heritage, our ethnicity, our sex, gender, whatever that may be. There's aspects of those things that are good and valid. They do not define us. They don't define us. They are not where we find our identity. And Paul is clear about this in this passage. What he's saying, listen, here there is not Greek and Jew, Circumcised, so Greek and Jew, this is your nationality. Circumcised and uncircumcised, this is your religious beliefs. Your barbarian and Scythian, this is your education and your cultural achievements. Slave or free, this is your sense of self, your economic status. All of that, he says, that is not who we are, but Christ is all and in all. In the body of Christ, the dividing, all the dividing ideologies are exchanged for the one person who can destroy all the hatred and all the strife and all the division and all the prejudice and all the discrimination and all of the injustice that we see in our world, and that is Jesus. When Jesus is everything to us as the people of God, he unites us, he enables us, to actually appreciate the different aspects of our cultures, those things that differentiate us in one way or another, and he helps us to appreciate these differences as they glorify our Lord, who's so much bigger than any one single subculture's understanding of him. You think about this, because Jesus is the focal point Even how we may worship 
and experience Jesus within different subcultures becomes a point of enrichment. I had a conversation sometime back with someone about worship, and we were definitely disagreeing with what it means to worship God in, in biblical worship. And at one point, I finally just said this. I said, listen. I said, I, I am not an expert on all things related to worship, but here's one thing. I will bet my every dollar I have, I'll go to grave believing. And that is one day... When we are all standing before the throne of God for eternity, worshiping him, that worship is not going to be 16th century European. And it's not going to be 21st century modern American. Before the throne of God, the scriptures tell us in Revelation, it's going to be every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every ethnic group, Every people. And the picture there is they are all together worshiping God. The worship of God for eternity is going to so blow our categories, we don't have a category for it. But what you can be certain of is that God has created all of these different groups because all of the ways that they are worshiping him, truly worshiping him, glorify him. And for eternity, it's going to come together. It's like a, here's an old word for you guys. It's like a smorgasbord of worship. <laughs> and if those of you who are too young to know what that word means, look it up. It's an awesome word. It is. Yes, it is. That's right. And that's what we get to look forward to. <laughs> Okay, so in the spirit of authenticity and transparency, it's not just a fishing shirt. <laughs> There's also fishing shoes. <laughs> and uh, so last year, at some point, I noticed I was getting ready for a trip. I noticed that my fishing shoes were not in their normal place. So I started looking for them. And... It was clearly a providential appointment, and it was good that I noticed them at that time because I ultimately found them strategically placed under several bags of trash <laughs> in the outside garbage can. And you know, the funny thing is, that's not the first time that has happened. <laughs> it is a mystery. I, how do these shoes keep ending up out there? It's a, it's a puzzle. This is like one of those, you know, try to figure out EMC squared type puzzles. How does this continue to happen? I can't figure it out. Yeah, right. In our, uh, and, and of course, you know what I did, right? Yeah, it's like Paul just, Paul just shrugs, matter of fact. Like, yeah, you got them out and put them back in their place. Exactly. That's what, exactly what I, I went into the garbage. I pulled them out. I put them back in my place. And by the way, they're still there. <laughs> Warm Tuesday. Right? You know, in our spiritual life, our natural inclination is to go to the garbage and grab those nasty clothes that we threw away and put them back on. That's our natural inclination. It's what we want to do. We're not yet fully sanctified. We're going to continue to struggle. And, 
And there are aspects of those. I mean, even throwing out that green shirt Tuesday, there was a part of me that was kind of grieving. It's like, you know, I like this shirt. Should I really throw it out? You know? And that's the way it is for us in our spiritual lives. We, we know that this old shirt that we were clothed in, that Adamic shirt, it is not right. It is not good for us. It is nasty. It is sinful. It is harmful to every aspect of our lives. And yet there's something about it that is so compelling that we will go back to the trash can and we will pull it out and we will try to put it back on. And we do it over and over and over again. And we struggle with this. And we will scheme and we will compromise by maybe just putting on a little extra to what we have with Jesus. We make, we make our own little uniform, our own outfit. Who am I wearing? I'm wearing Jerry. <laughs> right? My own creation. A lot of Jesus and a little bit of that old shirt. And it's Jerry that I'm wearing. And so... These verses here, Paul says, put on then as God. In other words, decisively commit to Jesus and let that commitment shape your attitude and your actions. Put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. These, these verses and these words are giving us a vivid picture of what it looks like to relate to one another as fellow Christians in our local church. Living out our identity in Christ first starts with the people sitting to your right and to your left, in front and behind, in your covenant group. It starts there with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but even in our church, the temptation to do church clothed with aspects of that old, nasty shirt is a powerful temptation. So in verses 12 to 17, even as he describes how we will look differently when we wear Jesus, Paul acknowledges implicitly that we're going to fail. That it's impossible for us and our own power and ability to do so. And so in these verses, he points us to the gospel. He says, in order to wear Jesus, your identity is in Jesus because of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you want to wear him out, if you want to demonstrate and live out who he is to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to go back to the gospel to find the motivation and the power that you need to be successful. And so as much as he tells us what it looks like to wear Jesus in these verses, he points us to the gospel and says, go back to the gospel so that you can wear Jesus to one another. And there's several aspects of this here, several gospel motivators. He begins in verse 12 by reminding us that we should want to wear Jesus to one another because we are the recipients of God's sovereign grace. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He begins right there saying, why should you be Jesus? Wear Jesus to one another? Where do you find the motivation to do so? Look at God's grace and how you've already experienced it, he says. 
before the foundations of the world, God decided to take you out of that pit of sin with those nasty, stinky clothes and pull you out, clean you up, and give you his grace and the robes of Jesus' righteousness. And he did that in spite of ourselves. We come into this world not wanting Jesus. Some of you here this morning, you're listening to my message and you're scratching your head on the inside saying, what the heck is this dude talking about? You don't want Jesus. Why? Why do you not want Jesus yet the person next to you, the people around you do? Because God has done his a work of grace in their lives. He's given them a new heart that loves Jesus. And your greatest need in life is for you to begin to pray and ask God to give you that kind of heart. Don't bother praying for anything else. Don't bother asking God for anything else. Because until God gives you a heart that loves Jesus, the scriptures say you're actually at war with God. The people you're at war with, you don't go to asking them for blessings and favors. You go to the people that you're in relationship with. And for that to happen, God has to give you a heart that loves Jesus. And so if much of what I'm saying makes you kind of wonder or ask questions, start there. Give me a ring and we'll talk about it more. He goes on and says, not only should us being recipients of God's grace motivate us, he also points out we, we have been completely and utterly forgiven. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. What should motivate us to wear Jesus towards one another? The fact that we've been forgiven. When those people in our own church may offend us and sin against us, the old natural self, that old shirt that we will often wear, encourages us to not forgive, to get bitter, to hold a grudge, maybe get vengeance. And this passage tells us the gospel reminds us that to not forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ is actually to blaspheme the forgiveness they've already experienced in Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, who do we think we are to not forgive someone when God himself, in Jesus Christ, has forgiven them? Are we greater than he? Do we have a right to demand and put upon someone and not forgive when he himself has forgiven Remember, every sin, the, the first victim of every sin, the first person offended with every sin is our Lord and Savior, not, the, not us. He moves on in verse 14, 15 and tells us we have been given the peace of Christ to guide us, one of the means of God's grace to empower us to wear Jesus well. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. That idea of the peace of Christ ruling is that it's, our, it's an umpire. Some of you are baseball players. You have an umpire behind a catcher. He calls balls and strikes. For those of you who are pitchers, he always calls badly on those balls, doesn't he, right? And, and this passage is saying the, the peace of Christ is an umpire in our heart. In other words, he is, he is saying, you know, fable, that is not God's will for your life. This is not the decision you are to make. You should go this direction, not that direction. The peace of Christ serves as an umpire. 
Now, we have to be careful here because I wish I had $100 for every time someone was in my office saying, you know, I'm, I'm leaving my spouse that I've been married to for 20 years and our children, and I'm taking up with this other person, and I've prayed about it, and I know it's right because I have peace in my heart about this. Okay? I've heard it so many times. Dr. Warren Wearsby gives a great pastoral warning. He says, we must beware, however, of a false peace in the heart. Jonah deliberately disobeyed God, yet he was able to go to sleep in the hold of a ship in a storm. There you go. I had peace about it, quote unquote. It's not sufficient evidence that we are in the will of God. We must pray, surrender to his will, and seek his guidance in the scriptures. The peace of heart alone is not always the peace of God. Can we read that last sentence out loud together? The peace of heart alone is not always the peace of God. As Dr. Wearsby points out, God has given us many means of grace that ultimately help build this peace. He mentions it again in these verses in, when he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, that peace of Christ is supported and built up by the indwelling word of God in our hearts that the Holy Spirit uses to shape our thoughts and our actions. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it be at home in your life. Let it take up permanent residence, he's saying, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When we look at these verses, we quickly realize that there is no aspect of our lives that is untouched and unaffected by Jesus, especially as we live in biblical community with one another. Verse 14 really is the, the connecting verse, maybe the, the verse that covers everything, the truth that ties it all together. It, it's verse 14 that summarizes and describes how our church is to be a radically different kind of community. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Not the emotional love of romance or the relationship love of a friend, but the, the self-sacrificing, others-first love demonstrated by Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins. And above all these, put on love. Why didn't Paul start there? If this is the, if this is the quality that ties everything together, why didn't he start in verse 9 with love? Why doesn't he go there first? I think it actually speaks to the interdependency of our live authentically together church value and our, another church value, caring genuinely for one another. I regularly see our church doing this. I, our, this last year in our covenant group alone, just an hour alone, I mean, there were times where we, we supported one another as a sibling would die, parents would die, Major surgeries were happening, other life events, 
good and bad, we walk together supporting one another, being there for each other, spiritually, emotionally, even tangibly with meals and companionship. And I know that as that happened in our group, that happened in groups all across the church. And I could give you example after example. We care this way. Why? Because we are wearing Jesus to one another. That's what's going on. And this wearing of Jesus is expressed as genuine care and concern for one another that is rooted in Jesus, a Jesus-given, Jesus-type of self-sacrificing love. But this type of love, expressed in genuine care, does not grow and get rooted in our church unless and until we are living transparently and authentically and honestly with one another. The love doesn't happen like this, unless that prerequisite of living authentically with one another is happening. This prerequisite of transparency and authenticity and honesty so that love may grow and abound is why living out of our identity in Christ is so important. You see, it's this identity that gives us the freedom and the power to be honest about where we're at in life. And when we know that we are accepted by God because of who we are in Jesus Christ, we are then not compelled to lie or deceive or put on a fake front or exaggerate or promote and portray ourselves in a way that isn't real in order to be accepted by other people in our church. When we are accepted by God, we don't have to do those things. Conversely, when we are not living out of our identity in Christ, we are regularly going to deceive and lie and obfuscate and you know, conceal what's going on in our lives because we value the acceptance of the other person so much, we will deceive them and live falsely. That's what happens when we're not living out of our identity in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, let me ask you, are you living out of your identity in Christ with one another? Is it reflected in authenticity and honesty? Have you been in group with people for years and yet no one in that group knows the deepest sin struggle that you have? If that's the case, we aren't wearing Jesus to one another. Lord Jesus, would you help us to put you on in all of your beauty, to wear you well. Lord Jesus, help us to be so secure in who we are in you that we are not afraid to live transparently with others. Give us the grace that we need, Lord, to to see how much you actually love us, how accepted we really are because we are in Christ. Lord, help us to wear you well this week. And for the person who's never put you on, for the person who's still wearing their old clothes, would you help them to, would you help them to discern how bad it smells? how badly 
they need new clothes. The robes of Jesus' righteousness. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.